Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of A Chat About History with me, Tom. Uh, so I'm sorry first of all for the big break there's been in episodes, I've just been very busy with other things going on in my life, but I'm finally back and I'm doing an episode on something that I find very interesting and I guess to some extent fundamentally underpins how I'm understanding history at the moment. Um, and something that I think is really interesting and I'm exploring uh, myself. So that is, you know, as you can see in the title, the idea of morality and history and how they can interact, uh, especially considering it currently is an unpopular view. But there are people out there championing it, championing it such as Donald Bloxham, and it is a view that is held by, uh, his, you know, very eminent historians such as Paul Cartledge. So in that sense, the idea of morality and history being compatible is that unpopular view, but there is there is some scope of historians who think it is a a valid pursuit to um, to consider and something that you know could change how history is understood to a degree. Um, and I think my understanding of morality and history is kind of split into into two parts. One is the idea of understanding morality as a force in history and how morality has motivated people and equally there is the other side of it which is the idea of morality uh, in terms of historiography and to what extent morality should be involved in in the historian's role <clears throat> in engaging with the sources excuse me um, so this episode is going to deal primarily with the idea of morality in historiography and how morality plays a role in what the you know how the historian deals with evidence and reaches conclusions and you know writes writes their history. Um, so this you know as I said before there are works on this currently, but it's not a popular viewpoint. So Donald Bloxham's written very recently actually a book titled History of Morality that deals with the topic very directly. Um, and equally, it's often dealt with in in part by works on historiography, um, such as E. H. Carr is a little bit on morality and history, and um, so does Richard Evans in his Inner Defence of History. Uh, so I'm going to start off, I guess, where, uh, where we're saying that, you know, blocks and picks up on very fundamentally, and that's the idea that actually that morality and history are already, um, that there's already a clear intersection between the two, in that it is inevitable that historians will make moral, emotive, subjective judgments and use that emotive language in their writing. So, you know, this is something I've come across very clearly in my historical reading, such as uh, Ferguson referring to communism as a monster casually in his book Colossus. Um, and also, if you look at certain phraseology, such as the idea of a historian using either cold-blooded or hot-blooded, that initially implies, um, immediately implies, sorry, that, you know, if it's cold-blooded, it's calculated and done out of out of malice, and there, there is more responsibility there, whereas... Uh, a term such as hot-blooded could imply it was done out of anger, and it almost um, uh, absolves the the um, the historical figure of blame because they were so consumed by this hot-blooded mess of anger. Um, so, in that there, there are two clear examples there of how emotive language is already imbued in scholarship today, uh, and equally moral judgments. <coughs> excuse me, moral judgments are 
are clear in scholarship, but they have to be tacit due to the current amoral nature of scholarship where, you know, enacting moral judgment is frowned upon. So again, I'll go back to Colossians, uh, sorry, Ferguson's Colossus, where he fundamentally comes out with a moral judgment that the best thing for the world today is a liberal American empire, which, although at no point in his book does he explicitly state that he's, you know, weighed up moral, um, you know, two moral arguments and concluded that, you know, the American empire is morally justifiable and a, a moral good for the world. It's it's tacit and hidden behind this this veneer of objectivity that, that Ferguson puts up. And again, Quasi Quateng's um, book, Ghost of Empire, refers to Hong Kong as the most successful exercise in benevolent dictatorship in history, um, which you, you could disagree on on many levels. I mean, is it really a benevolent dictatorship, the British Empire in Hong Kong? Uh, I wouldn't say so. But either way, again, he's enacting this moral judgment that goes along with successful. I mean, surely moral moral means it are, are included in success. And the word benevolent, obviously, immediately, therefore, also has moral implications. I mean, benevolence is linked fundamentally to um, somebody acting morally. So that they're, they're clear examples of how currently morality is already in scholarship in casual judgments and overall judgments, um, as well as just, you know, language littered around the book. So therefore, we can see that there is already morality involved in scholarship. And equally, subjectivity rather than objectivity, which is kind of the other side. So you either have morality in history and admit to some subjectivity because not everybody holds the same moral code. And I don't think anyone can, is it right to say their moral code is uh, innately better than somebody else's. I think societally we we work out what we find morally acceptable and unacceptable. But um, you so you have that one side of objectivity and then morality is in the more the side of the historian realising that they are subjective. And I think historians naturally are subjective. I don't think that's anyone can deny this because two historians will look at the exact same facts and the exact same historical situations and reach vastly different conclusions, which to some extent is, is why history is such an interesting discipline because there is no definitive right answer. And I think if historians ever think they've reached a definitive right answer, um, I mean, to some extent, it's quite arrogant to say that they have reached it and no one else has. But equally, I think it, it shows a lack of understanding that history is always changing as new evidence comes to light or people ask new questions of evidence. But um, to, So for, the, for all those reasons, two historians with the same facts can reach two completely different conclusions, showing you can never really reach true objectivity. Um, as, as there'll be supporters in both camps and there's always new ways to to look at evidence and read evidence and to some extent that's very much a reflection of the historian themselves and their personal lives and how they perceive the world and their views so in that sense the historian is innately linked to his his works and their products of their time their place and you know the lives that they've led so i hope i've shown there that it is inevitable that historians will make moral judgments in their scholarship so i'll i'll focus in on the kind of argument I've alluded to of the current historical discipline where all historians claim objectivity versus I guess what I'm advocating for at least right now in my thinking that is this idea of recognising historians recognising their own subjectivity. Um, so so and obviously the two are relatively incompatible because if someone is objective then they can't simultaneously be subjective um, and you know I would argue that the you know moral judgments can only be made in that in that subjective um, writing of history. So, first of all, we've shown objectivity is an impossible aim. 
Um, so in that sense, you know, I'll, I'll expand on the, the flaws of objective history later, but yeah, that's just something that we really need to bear in mind. But I guess recognizing subjectivity has a lot of a lot of benefits. I think first of all, it's more honest, um, and that is very important. I think, especially in the world today, where we see a widespread distrust of politicians and academics, um, people don't necessarily listen to expert advice for you know a lot of reasons. Maybe the expert advice hasn't worked for them, um, but I think you know obviously the first thing that comes to mind in bridging that gap between academics, politicians, I guess what, and, and the distrust that, that a lot of people perceive, you know, to be between the people and this, the academics, is, is a degree of honesty, and recognising, well, I don't, you know, I'm not a, a purely objective, I don't have all the answers, but this is, this is the best, the best that, you know, historic, histor historical scholarship can currently offer. Um, so I think that's something that, is very relevant in terms of popularizing history, which I again, hopefully as you can tell by this podcast, fundamentally believe in. Uh, and also, I think it, if you recognise your subjectivity, you can draw moral conclusions more overtly. So Ferguson's judgment that the best thing for the world currently is a liberal American empire. Um, you know, again, I don't agree with his judgment, but I think the fact he has to do it tacitly fundamentally undermines his his process of. Of, of, of thought because he can't be open about the moral dilemmas and the moral judgments he is making because he has to perceive his scholarship has to be perceived as amoral to fit with current expectations of historical scholarship uh, and then finally I guess recognizing subjectivity it, it makes history more relevant I think um, so for, and I think almost the amorality of history can be seen in current problems facing society, the most obvious one being the, the debate around statues, whether they should fall, whether they should stand, um, and that's not something I'm going to get into in this podcast, I might in another one, but I think fundamentally recognising that there is an intersection between morality and history, and the two aren't completely in separate spheres, and there has to be a link between them, would help address the problem um, that people are currently facing, where history has been taught in this amoral fashion, which is kind of morphing the idea that history has been taught almost immorally, and that is reflected in the idea that um, that statues should be pulled down, and that's a debate that currently, well, consumed our society, especially around the Black Lives Matter movement in the summer. So I've just given a little pitch, I guess, for why recognising subjectivity um, is, a, is a good idea. But I think, naturally, I should recognise the other side and that there are definitely drawbacks of morality in history. Uh, and obvious, the first obvious example, I think, is this idea of hard moralism. And that is something that has distorted historical scholarship in the past to a great extent. Um, and the most obvious example of this, I think of this is harking back to Greco-Roman authors. For example, if you look at Sallust's Catalinarian Conspiracy, he very clearly um, equates Catiline with this this moral depravity and his the morality leads the facts rather than the other way around so in that sense this hard moral imposition a historian imposing their moral views onto history and saying well the whole of history can be understood through this idea of moral decline or um or you know the the rise in, rise in luxury and like like Salus was doing obscures the historical events that were happening as um, 
history is written almost as like a moral parable rather than as an accurate representation of the past. Um, but again, there's a clear antidote to this, and that is just that the facts should lead historical scholarship as they, uh, you know, as they do currently, and that that wouldn't change necessarily if one draws moral conclusions from the evidence, and if a historian is led by the facts, and then in the same way they currently evaluate and draw conclusions, why could not they not draw moral conclusions or evaluate morally um, and do that overtly? Um, and that should follow the facts rather than, as in, you know, the the, pre the previous example I mentioned of Sallust, where morality arguably led the facts. And that's not exclusive to Sallust. There were many other, you know, uh, you know Plutarch arguably did the same, and, and Livy as well, imposing morality onto the work rather than letting morality guide 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 the scholarship or the, the facts um, in the sense that I, you know, I'm advocating where morality can enhance the evidence rather than distorting it. Um, again, and then we see that similarly, you could, if you look at, like, let's say, Marxist history, I mean, the idea that one could impose Marxist history on the whole of society and try and chart the class war back to ancient Sparta, let's say, and see the helots as some, um, you know, a proletariat against the bourgeoisie, Spartia class, I think, you know, distorts history. Actually, understanding social history and class conflict is is does fundamentally un help one understand certain aspects of it, of of, of, of of you know historical scholarship. Um, I think another drawback of morality in history, then, beyond this idea of hard moralism, is this idea of moral vanity, um, and that's something that is very prominent today. I think a lot of people accuse certain groups who hold others to account of moral vanity. Um, but equally, I think a lot of guilt groups are guilty to an extent of moral vanity and believing that today we have achieved a moral supremacy and that people who don't immediately abide by the moral code that we believe right now is correct are therefore immoral. And you know, there's a really interesting phenomenon called the purity spiral, which you know, I don't have time to, to delve into, but it's, it's basically a fascinating thesis that, um, that morality, they keep trying to outbid each other and one ends up at a position that is so far detached from the one that was actually originally um, thought about and considered, but one needs to keep outbidding the morality of others and becoming more and more quote-unquote moral. Um, and to, to anything that, that was that was less quote-unquote moral is, is abhorrent. So this ties back into this idea of moral vanity to... to to direct relevance in terms of morality and history. So the idea that we've achieved a moral supremacy and then this is this moral supremacy is imposed on the past, I think, would is a is a mistake. So I don't think we should now be saying we've achieved moral supremacy and then history should not be written as well. Uh, you know, all the ancient Athenians were involved in a slave society, so they were obviously all horrible people and then that's just that's just how history goes. I mean I think that is, you know, she almost shows a lack of understanding of history and how history worked and the concepts people were grappling with at the time. And it's a lot easier now for everyone to say, well, the Athenians were horrible because they had a slave society, um, rather than, obviously, at the time, it would have been quite radical for any Athenian to say, you know what, you know, we should we should get rid of all these slaves in our city. I think, you know, their society was underpinned by the slave society they that they, that they ran on, and it's something that's completely unfathomable rather than today, whereas we see it as things rather abominable to, to have a slave society. And in that sense, what I'm alluding to is the fact we have to understand the past 
and their own moral codes. And I think that is very much linked with the idea of this other side of morality, where you study morality and how that's motivated people in the past. But um, but yeah, so that ties into this idea of not imposing our moral 21st century perspective that is, you know, innately superior because we believe it, not imposing that kind of moral vanity onto the past. And I think another drawback, finally, that one could argue in enacting morality in history is that, that there's a loss of authority for the historian in that if the historian isn't objective, then they almost lose authority because, well, he's just got an opinion like everybody else and he's not right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, again, I don't <laughs> I, I don't think that's that's almost a pride thing, isn't it? That, well, you know, I, I, I'm a historian, so I must be right. Whereas actually, you know, historians will naturally often be significantly better informed than other people, especially in matters of history. Um, but just admitting that, no, well, you know, I'm not purely objective doesn't necessarily mean the historian loses authority. Um, and and ultimately, you know, a historian espouses an argument. They don't really espouse, um, you know, that they, they they shouldn't be espousing espousing something that they've you know revolutionised and found the fundamental truth. They're they're pronouncing an argument that they have found to address the issue or question that, that they that they wanted to address. And arguably, in my view, there's less authority with the, with the historian if he is lying and says he's claimed he's found all the answers, you know, he or she, the historian. But if they, if, if this historian then has, uh, you know, is lying and claims to have all this authority, then in my view, they, they have less authority than if they admit that they don't have all the answers and they're just doing their best job to, to address the question in hand. So they're kind of the drawbacks of morality and history. And again, I've mentioned them and equally given a, given a little counter-argument there. So I'll also look at the drawbacks then that I've briefly mentioned before on, on objectivity in history. Um, and that is what we currently have. And so I guess what I'm currently doing is picking holes in what our current historical scholarship um, says and how it, how it treats the historical discipline. So I think, first of all, objectivity in history, I read a nice quote about how it almost leads history down a cul-de-sac. Um, and and what what I think is was meant by this, and what I mean when I when I say this is that I guess there's no if it is impossible to reach objectivity in history, then 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 where does one go um, any further down down this idea of, of of having purely objective history? And also, the more objective history becomes, the less evaluation, the less engagement there is, and in that sense, it becomes almost more irrelevant, and the discussions become more esoteric. Uh, the less evaluation and what is, you know, the evaluation is fundamentally subjective. Um, and with that, historical scholarship will become almost inaccessible to, to, more, to more people, which would reduce the impacts history and historical scholarship can have on benefiting society more generally. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's, that, that's the idea of we need to ensure history involves valuation and can engage a large audience and ob ultimately objectivity I think is leading away from that rather than towards it. Um, also neutrality which is what objectivity is, is relying upon that the scholar is neutral can also be used to obscure and this is something that again Bloxham picks up on. Um, so for example if you look at Sally Hemings um, you know she's described in historical works as a maid in, in this, this neutral term of, well, Sally Hemings was a maid, when actually the re historical reality was she was a slave to Thomas Jefferson, you know, and they had a sexual relationship. Um, 
you know, and she was fundamentally a slave to and the property of Thomas Jefferson rather than the connotations that we currently have of, of maid, where, you know, a maid is, you know, she may be very much reliant on, on whoever she is serving, but she is fundamentally a free person. So in that sense, Sally Hemings is a clear example of where neutrality is used to obscure the historical evidence rather than um, illuminate it. And again, I'll, I'll hop back finally to this idea that objectivity in history is fundamentally impossible. So as long as it is claimed, to some extent, the historian is deceiving the readers uh, rather than owning up to subjectivity and therefore allowing for greater greater debate and the inclusion of subjects such as morality that can't really be treated objectively because morality is fundamentally subjective. So that's my drawbacks of objectivity in history. So finally, I'm kind of going to wrap this up with this idea of an overall, how can morality help us understand history? Um, and how can history help us morally, I guess, is the other side of that. And again, I'm not 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 in not in trying to enact a hard moralism here. I think that's something I really don't want to don't want to be perceived as trying to do. And equally I'm not saying that we need to draw like loads of like look to the past to guide our moral compasses or anything like that. I think that's sometimes misguided, but equally has some has some weight to it in that the biggest evidence of real life moral scenarios is is historic is history. So therefore, understanding the differences between how we perceive things morally today and how we, how people have perceived more things morally in the past um, is, <laughs> is something I think that's fundamental to understand where our morality comes from and how morality is relevant to today. And the easiest way to do that is through morally examining, examining the past and understanding the scenarios and the decisions people made and the consequences that that came from them and again as situations cannot be mapped exactly onto one another one cannot say well this decision was made in the 1450s that means that today in society that is completely different and orientated completely differently i need to make the other decision you know there's no equation of directly the past onto the present or the present onto the past but one can draw lessons from history otherwise you know why does anyone study history um but the most important thing I think about morality and history is that it is very relevant to society today. And in that sense, morality, the, his, the amorality of history creates direct problems in society today, whether that is the statute debate, debates about what is taught in school, or so many other issues. Um, the, the amorality of history can almost be perceived and pointed to as an immorality of history. And I think historians can only validly defend the positions they're holding if they admit that they are subjective and hold a moral opinion. Um, and otherwise, I think it's quite hard to simply say that, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm objective, this is an objective history, when, when such a thing simply does not exist. Um, so overall, just to, just to wrap it up then, you know, it's, we've, we've basically been discussing today this idea of morality and history, and I fundamentally think it's inevitable historians will make moral judgments, and it is also considerably better than the alternative that is this idea of objectivity that is fundamentally impossible, leads to a more closed rather than open debate, um, and possibly leads history away from, from relevance and down a path that is less helpful to, to 
illuminating both the past and society today. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, please check out my other episodes if you enjoyed this one. And I'll hope to get another episode out to you again soon. Goodbye and have a lovely day.